Hi, I'm Jim Chafee, producer of The Road Back to You. As we mentioned before our last podcast, Ian, Suzanne, and I have personally covered the production costs for our first season. And now, as we have grown, we've reached a point where we need to ask you for help. If you will go to our website, theroadbacktoyou.com, and click on the Donate tab, you will find detailed information on how you can become one of our patrons. Depending on the level you choose, as a patron, you can have access to our private online Enneagram community, up to three bonus podcasts each month, two to three live webcasts annually with Ian, Suzanne, and special guests, and one free registration each year to one of our Enneagram conferences. By making a one-time contribution or committing to a small monthly donation, you can help us continue to provide the quality programming to which you've become accustomed. No gift is too large or small, and all donations are deeply appreciated. Again, go to theroadbacktoyou.com and click on the Donate tab, where you will find detailed information on how you can partner with us. And now welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of The Road Back to You. Morning, Ian Cron. It's a nice day in Nashville. It is a it is a nice day in Nashville. What show are we on right now, Suzanne? We're on the road back to you. Okay, good. Did you think we were doing somebody else's I show? I wasn't today? sure. I'm. You know, you got up at two to get to a four. Or no, flight, I got up at four to get up to a six. To flight here to, yeah. to Nashville. Yeah. I went to bed late, so we're. This is going to be a funny podcast. I fear <laughs> that it may become very inappropriate. Well, I I will never be inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I'm good, though. Are you good? I am good. I, you know what we're doing? What? We're buying a new dog. You are? Yeah. We, you know, we we lost two dogs last year, and we are so we're getting. You you're gonna laugh when I tell you what kind of dog we're getting. What kind? We're getting a Legato Romagnolo. There you go. What mm. is that? They're truffle hunters. <laughs> of course they are. They are. That's what they do. They hunt truffles, and I'm going to become a truffle hunter. I'm going to have my own TV show and everything. Okay. Yeah. That's Let's okay. go to our guests, because then the conversation may turn intelligent. Yeah. Before we do that, though, I just do want to say one thing. It would be good to do a whole show on the things that fours explore for their lives that nobody else would ever consider. Thank you. Like truffle hunting. Yeah. I don't even like truffles, and it's going to be the coolest thing ever. Yeah, that truffle oil stuff smells terrible, I'm just telling you. And you know, can I tell you something? Well, yeah. My new son-in-law, Paul, who I adore, Yeah. Uh, and he is a really, like, a real seven, Yeah. okay? He is going to get one, too, because when I told him about it, he just, you know, his little ears went, like this, they went right up. He's like, oh, truffle hunting, I can't wait. And <sighs> I love sevens. Yes, I have a, I have a son who's a seven. You have a son who's a seven. I and do. our guest today... Is a seven. Is a seven. So that's exciting to so me. So why don't you tell everybody about Lillian? Everybody, I want to introduce you to our new friend, Lillian Daniel. Lillian is a UCC pastor. Uh, she is an author. Uh, she has two wonderful books. One is uh, Tired of Apologizing for a Church I Don't Belong to, Spirituality Without Stereotypes, Religion Without Ranting. I like that. 
And uh, her 2013 book, When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough, Seeing God in Surprising Places, Even the Church. She's a crazy good preacher, too. Yes. Yeah. She is a crazy uh, award-winning yeah. preacher, right? Graduate, sometimes those two things go together. <laughs> sometimes. But she's a graduate of, of Yale Divinity School, which was right up the road from where I grew up. So I'm, I feel special affinity for Lillian. Hi, Lillian. We're going to stop talking about you and start talking to you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks Thank. for coming. I hope I'm not keeping you awake. Oh, <laughs> trust me. We are wide awake for the next couple hours, and then things yeah. tail off bad. Mission drift sets in, and Jim gets angry. I'm good till about 4.30. Okay, I'm good. great. All right. So, Lillian, um, you, as I think is true, are somewhat um, new at arriving at your number because other people did things they shouldn't do and told you what number they thought you were. Yes, exactly. And of course, you know, I reject personality tests in general because I think I'm far too interesting and there should be like nine and a half categories, et cetera. But, um, but it was interesting that when people told me what they thought I was, I didn't particularly connect to it. Often people would say, you're a three. And, um, and because I didn't really connect to that, I wasn't that interested in the Enneagram. What was interesting is that when I actually did do the test and I really took it seriously, I was going through kind of a period of vocational crisis and what do I do with my life and, you know, open to all kinds of things. Um, when it came back that I was a seven, but also with a strong amount in the eight category, yeah, that made so much more sense to me and kind of opened the Enneagram up for me. Yeah. You know, I've been preaching for years that people should never tell other people what number they think they are, but you just can't, no. I can't, I can't stop they, they them from stop. doing that. Mm-hmm. They won't stop. And it's a... It's just the wrong thing. I would, I would uh, suppose. Kind of like telling people what they should give up for Lent. Exactly. Like telling other people what they yeah. should do for Lent. Like, exactly. Yeah, that's not what it's for. <laughs> well, you know, one real important thing about the Enneagram is that it's uh, your number is determined by motivation, not by behavior. So unless somebody knows you really well, they wouldn't have any idea what your number is anyway. Well, and I think as, as a writer and as a minister, you know, you have to have a certain amount of discipline. And so maybe your seven can't be sort of large and on display. Yeah. So you have to learn to present in other ways. And mm. I think that's sure. part of why people put me in the three category. Mm-hmm. So um, the sevens are called the enthusiast. Uh, Helen Palmer calls them the epicure. Um, they are remarkable human beings. When they are healthy, man, I'll tell you, that's the number I always tell people I would love to be as a, as a healthy, deep Seven, and uh, Suze, why don't you tell a couple of your favorite features of sevens, and then, and then uh, I like to ask Lillian the same question. All right. Well, um, before we do that, I just want you to know that with the time you're my age, you'll want to be a nine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I I think I have three uh, features that I would talk about off the top of my head about sevens, and the first is that. There are two sides to everything, and sevens reframe things instantly. And I think that can be a real downside for sevens to not deal with pain and not learn to grieve and not do those things. But boy, are we in a time in the culture where we need to Mm. do some positive reframing. So that's a really good gift, I think, that sevens bring. And um, sevens uh, are smart with humor. Mm-hmm. And their humor is uh, not usually at the expense of somebody else. 
their humor more often is smarter than at the expense of somebody else. And I really like that, too. Mm. I like that a lot. What I love about Sevens most is every day is a snow day. Yeah. Yeah, that's Every true. day, even in August, yeah. it's a snow day. Lillian, what about you? What do you What do you like about being a seven? And what are some of the challenges maybe for you as, as being a seven? Well, I think the word that jumped out at me when I read about sevens was adventure mm. and the desire for adventure. And I thought that's me. And so sometimes in your work, that can seem entrepreneurial or risk-taking. And I think at our best, we're taking healthy risks. You know, at our worst, we're just not careful, right? But um, But the adventure part, I loved. And I also felt like it was sort of a reframing of what gets disparagingly categorized as ADD. Mm. You know, oh, you can't focus on one thing. And I liked the idea of the seven as that that was a plus, that you had enthusiasm and interest and that you needed that to sort of thrive. Um, The part I also really related to was, you know, I think there are people who are afraid of being trapped or engulfed. And then there are people who are afraid of being abandoned and alone. And I'm totally afraid of being trapped and engulfed. Mm. That's my fear. So as a seven, you know, that makes so much sense. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for the escape route. Yeah. You know, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. That's so interesting because I know that your dad was a journalist and that you lived in Asia and other places as a child. And I would think that your sevenness served you well mm-hmm. in that reality. And I would think that reality added to your sevenness. Absolutely. I mean, when you're a third culture kid, you grow up overseas. And so I'd gone to nine schools by the time I was in high school. You know, we moved all the time and not just from one state to another, but Japan, Thailand, India, the Philippines, Hong Kong, London, and then ended up in the suburbs of DC with all these expats, you know. Um, you kind of have to have a sense of adventure. And my parents cultivated that in me. My dad was a foreign correspondent. He was in and out of war zones. But in many ways, I think my mother was the most courageous because here she was, this Southerner from South Carolina who had never left the country and then agrees to move to Japan, you know, and have this life of adventure. So that was absolutely how I was raised. Yeah. Could you talk about the downside and the upside of being a seven and a woman in ministry and a woman preaching. My husband uh, is a former Catholic priest, but he's a United Methodist pastor and has been for the last 30 years. And um, Methodists were early to the table to ordain women, and yet there's still a glass ceiling that um, seems to come down from time to time and then go up a little and come down. And I, I wonder how... Um, it's interesting that the numbers that you talked about are all aggressive numbers, three, seven, and eight, the numbers that you associate with. And I, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I'm saying a lot of words because I want you to speak to a lot, but what I want to end up talking about is the fact that I'm going to do an event next January for a lot of women clergy, and my topic is going to be what brought you here can't keep you here. Oh, how interesting. Hmm. Well, I never know how to answer that question because I've never been a male clergy person, so I don't know how to compare it. Right. Um, and I, I, I do think, though, there's something about the seven that says just try something. I, I worry about being a seven in ministry. I think this would be male and female, that there is a lot of fear and anxiety in the church right now, particularly in mainline Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really relate to the congregational church, the ones who were the abolitionists who came over on the Mayflower, 
who were like these freedom fighters, you know, the, the great awakening, the Holy Spirit, that's the part of the denomination, if any part of it, that I relate to. The anxiety, the bureaucracy, the political correctness, the works righteousness, I find all that incredibly tedious. And I think that ministers in a declining denomination, you know, a sense of adventure and joy and enthusiasm is not encouraged, is almost looked at askance. Wow, yeah. that's really well said. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm an Episcopal priest, and I, sometimes I think to my, I hope my bishop's not listening, but, I, but it does seem to me sometimes that the, the church seems hell-bent on uh, continuing its decline because it refuses the adventures, and it, it, it actually, di- you know, discourages it, and, and uh, you know, we need— And punishes, and punishes success. Punishes I success, mean, heaven yeah. forbid you—, you are part of a growing church in a mainline denomination. You'll be accused of selling out or being a country club church or not righteous enough. You know, they will know us by our shrinkage. Yes. Yeah, that's good. We're actually just known yeah. for, we're only known for our crustless sandwiches and sherry following the service. Um, <laughs> I know. I miss that. So listen, part of my story is that I was rejected by the Episcopal ordination process. Um, <laughs> you and so Brian I McLaren. Was, yeah, really? I yeah. didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I'm so honored. No, but I was in my early 20s. I was a religion major in college. I didn't know if I wanted to be a professor or whatever, but I thought, you know, had this sort of calling, but I didn't know what to do with it. And they kept grilling me on the Eucharist and, you know, how I would feel about that. And I was like, I'm fine with it. I could do it. You know, and that was the wrong answer to give to the Episcopal Church. But all kinds of things. I went through the process, the psychological testing. And that was a time when they were very high on second career people. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, straight out of college and they're asking me about my work experience. And I was like, well, I've worked in a movie theater and done some babysitting, you know. And in the end, I got <laughs> that actually That actually makes you very qualified to be a pastor. <laughs> no kidding. You know, a babysitting is a definite give. Well, no, and- I think that's more to be a bishop, Ian. That's, that's true. There you go. That's yeah. true. Yeah. But no, but I remember very clearly the letter of rejection. It mm. said that I was a thrill seeker, that I was immature, <gasps> and that I had issues with authority. Oh my gosh! I mean, you know, well, I mean, well, we would have known then that you were a we seven. Would have, we would have known then you were a seven, but but that's what the church kind of needs, you know, at this point in well, life. Well, it was you know? also, you know, if you picture that time in history, one of the things they thought made me a thrill seeker was that I was living in a predominantly African American neighborhood in D.C. Like that was what counted as being a thrill seeker. I was like, no, I'm just poor. Yeah, yeah. right, but, yeah. But it was, um, you know, but I look back on that and I do think. I would have really struggled in that ecclesiastical system. And so I ended up deciding not to go to divinity school. I canceled. I went to work at a social service agency, and these um, people from Howard Divinity School in the Black Baptist tradition said they'd been praying for me all year, and they thought I was meant to go to divinity school anyway. And it was like, that's all I, I needed. The Episcopal Church had said no. Everyone had said, you'd be terrible at this. And then these people said, we prayed for you and think you should go. And I was like, well, that confirms it. I'll go. Mm. You know. And I got there still not knowing why I was going, but acting on faith. And I um, discovered the congregational church, and it had more autonomy and this sense of history that I did love from the Episcopal Church. Mm. I love tradition. And I think part of what I've always appreciated growing up, I really grew up Anglican, you know, because I was overseas. And church was so important to me because everything else was chaotic. Mm. I really feel that the church for me is like a rootedness, a nest, mm-hmm. uh, a place of structure, the liturgical calendar. It helps me rein in, I think, my 
ability to get interested in everything. Mm. You know, uh, the we talk a lot about the underlying motivation. Every number has an underlying motivation, as Suzanne said earlier, and and it's real important because you know we can't you know uh, discover our number by virtue of just traits or you know external characteristics. We have we have access to all the that um, across all nine numbers. The, the underlying motivation for the seven is a need to avoid uh, uh, emotional and psychological pain. And, and I'm wondering, what, what does that look like for you? And, and how has that maybe changed over the years? I, th- I thought that was very interesting. And I found myself resisting that part of it because I thought, you know, hey, I'm a minister. I could have done some other job where I don't have to deal with pain. Um, but I will say that for me, always in the ministry, the hardest thing in the world is the hospital visit, mm-hmm. you know, to somebody who's, who's very ill, who I care about. But then again, I think, isn't that painful for everybody? Isn't that the cost of loving somebody that you feel that pain? You know, um, it doesn't prevent me from doing the work. But in terms of, yeah, avoiding my own pain, I think that is a just accusation there that you have to be careful about. You really do. Mm. And it's easy, I think, in the ministry or when you're busy speaking and writing to just go to the next thing and keep working and working and working and not pay attention to how you're feeling and how you're really doing. Yeah, you know, you're in the thinking triad with fives and sixes. And it's interesting to me to hear you uh, talk through what happens at a hospital visit with feelings. And then you think that everybody's in pain. And uh, huh. your thinking certainly shows itself in your writing and in your preaching. And I'm so concerned that the church, the church across the board, is so afraid of out-of-the-box thinking when everything that we're basing our Christian beliefs on were out-of-the-box thinking at the time. So far out of the box, so far out of the box. Absolutely. And I mean, to me, the scripture passages that I resonate the most strongly with, like to me, the idea of being born again is that you always have the opportunity for new life with the emphasis on new, that there's always something new to be discovered and that, you know, Jesus came that we would have life abundantly, that we would not have anxiety. Now you could say, am I just underlining my own personality characteristics and saying, look, Jesus is on my side, chill out everybody else. Or is there something fundamentally true there that the church should be proclaiming. And instead, we're just telegraphing this massive anxiety and this massive desire to please everybody. Like, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't play your favorite hymn. I'll try to fit it in next week. Instead of saying, don't be a narcissist. The music wasn't for you. Yeah, You know, it was to God's glory and you're going to hear things you don't like and chill out and relax. And we came that, you know, Jesus came so you'd have life abundantly. Not so you could sit here with a scorecard in church. Right, mm. right. You know, I, And I, also, how many churches don't laugh? Oh, my gosh. They laugh oh. when we're there. They, they do laugh when we're there, nervously. Yeah, but churches should be—like, I think the people in the pews are desperate to laugh. Mm-hmm. But when you come to a church, and you must experience this, and you make them laugh, and they'll often say, I didn't know it was okay to laugh in church. Right. right. Makes you wonder what the good news is, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the good news has got to be better than what uh, lots of folks hear mm, lots of weeks. Yeah. And similarly, how many churches are so terrified of offending people or failing? You mm-hmm. know, laughter is a release of tension. It's when you say something awkward. You have to be able to goof up to make yeah. people laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be a terrible, 
terrible pastor of a church. I'm, I'm a, I was one, so if you want to confirm that after this call, I can tell you. <laughs> I'm a good teacher, and I, I'm good at a lot of things, but I wouldn't be good as a pastor because in my two-ness, I um, kind of adapt to what people want. So um, it would be hard for me to lead people on a different path than the one they're on. Threes, sevens, and eights are the aggressive numbers on the Enneagram. And um, I, I wonder if there is an aggressive part of you that you've had to uh, kind of take the edges off of a little bit, and if it served you well to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's called sin. Oh, good. You know, and and uh, that you know the idea that you just do what you want and you know what you think and you go forward. And there's something very humbling about saying, "Wow!" Instead of having a career that might applaud all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, to go into something like the ministry where you actually believe in the body of Christ and you're saying, well, I'm just a toe and somebody else is the nose. And you're constantly having to check your humility on that stuff right? because Mm -hmm. you're working with volunteers. You're not a CEO. You know, if people don't agree with what you're saying, they don't have to do it. And so to deliberately choose that path, um, I think is a sense of like, how do you moderate your own ego? Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, and we have a lot of confusion uh, about the word ego, you know, uh, because in psychology, we, we talk about the, uh, an ego is a good thing, right? It's the organizing principle around which identity um, begins to form. But in the spiritual world, ego has a very different, right? When Paul says, for I no longer live, ego, right, is, is the word for I. And, you know, so... So, you know, it's a very confusing concept in our culture. And I think uh, what you're describing is that second ego, right? The, that, that ego that would like to have everyone else organize their lives around your priorities and preferences and needs, you know, and, and sort of manipulating the world to do it. I, I have a, a quick question for you. What were you, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to put you, I'm really on the spot, but what were you like at 20? Well, I was brilliant because I knew everything. Mm. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I was enormously instructive to my parents because they knew nothing. You know, no, I was, I was just, I got to college and you know, I went to a women's college and that was a huge thing for me. And I hadn't really thought about feminism much and that kind of stuff. Even though I look back, my mother was a feminist. She worked. Like, it never occurred to me I wouldn't work. Like, you know, you, you just do. And, but I got to this uh, college full of these feminists and they'd yell at you if you said girl instead of woman, you know, and here I was 17, you know, and, um, and it was also this, this wonderful intellectual awakening. I had been a real sort of B minus, you know, skate by sort of high school student. And all of a sudden I got to this really good college where none of those tricks worked and you couldn't get away with it, but also got introduced to like what fabulous teaching was and, taking courses in philosophy and religion and all of that. I mean, uh, so I was wildly enthusiastic. I joined everything, you know, I, my father was a journalist and I thought, well, I'm not going to be a journalist, but I ended up editor of the college newspaper. Uh, you know, so yeah, I was running for student government. I mean, I, I loved all of it, uh, just sort of soaked it all up. It was, it was amazing for me. I was in a band. I taught myself to play the bass guitar you know, went on tour with the band. I mean, I was just, it was sort of the birth of my confidence in a sense, because before that, I think I was, I was quieter. I was more melancholy. And then to be released into that environment, Mm -hmm. I called Mm -hmm. it my womb with a view, 
Oh, oh, that's great. That's good. That is good. That's really Bryn Mawr good. College. Oh, really you went to Bryn Mawr. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Getting a yeah. clear now. And it was definitely like, it was by far the best school I got into. And I didn't want to go there because I knew it was going to be filled with really studious girls, you know, and I wasn't like that. It was so good for me. It was like I had to up my game. And it was there that I got in touch with my intellectual self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I think sometimes sevens um, negate that yeah. more serious side, yes. the side of them where the water runs real deep. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times I think people presume because you're interested in a lot of things that you don't go deep anywhere mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You need to fulfill that expectation. But going to this, you know, small women's college, this liberal arts school, you couldn't get away with that. Like at the end of the day, you had to write an 80 page thesis on something that you knew something about. And so for me, it was Teresa of Avila. Oh, I got into the wow. then. So, you know, the, the reason I asked that was because, um, you know, oftentimes we ask people if they were like a 20 because your personality, your self-awareness quotient is particularly low and your personality, therefore, is really florid. You know, you're just all out there and you describe some, some features of sevens that I think are wonderful. One is that you, you all love stimulating ideas, yes. fascinating, stimulating ideas. My son's a seven. He goes to a college where there are no distribution requirements. He can take any class he wants. And I'm telling you, it's like it's like a salad bar. It's, it's everything. He took a class in Atlantic Pirates. That's what I paid for. He, mm-hmm. you know, so it was everything from Kafka to a course in Atlantic Pirates. And he just gets on the phone. He's like, I'm learning this. I'm learning that. I'm learning this. And you can, it's just like, you know, it's like crack. I mean, he's just in. It's great. Well, but, you know, on the flip side of that, for me at 20 at this college where the academic requirements were very rigorous and I couldn't, you know, skate through, I almost flunked out twice. I flunked mm. two classes. And that was a big deal because it just, that was my sevenness where the professor said, you have to show up. You know, you can't skip class. And I was like, surely that doesn't apply to me. Uh, well, guess what? I got an F. You know? yeah. And the irony is the two classes I flunked, one was um, called psychology oh. and the other was religion and politics. There you go. And if you think of it, those all three are passionate interests of mine. But at the time, I thought, I already know all about that. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go to class. Mm-hmm. And that was the seven getting yes. checked. Yeah, the rules don't apply to me. The rules yes. apply. Even like when I was a little girl... We were overseas, and I remember we were walking in England on those parks that have the signs on the grass, please don't walk on the grass. And my mother would be, like, pulling me in a diagonal across the grass, you know, with the signs on it. And I'd say, Mama, Mama, like, look at the sign. We're not supposed to be walking on the grass. And she said, Lillian, those rules are for the public. (laughs) Oh, that's (laughs) funny. You know, um, again, some wonderful features of Sevens just came out, right? She's unbelievable. She is. We You're just, just feeding her, her to us. We wouldn't have high to teach sevens. Really? So, yeah, well, because listen to this. One of the things that sevens hate is when people place limitations on them. They just yes. love escape hatches and optionality is everything. And you're, you're, here you are saying, you know, please don't, you know, box me in or tell me to do this or place limitations. On. And the intellectual superiority thing, when, when, when sevens are not in a great space, and I, I've lived with this as, as, as yeah, right? So the, they... They can go to this intellectually superior space, and, and it, oftentimes it's because they know a, they know something about a lot of things. Yep. And and when they're in a bad space, man, they can just they just start, and they're so quick on their feet. Mm-hmm. They can just talk. They're so good on their feet, charming, and boy, can they rationalize like crazy. 
So you just brought up such wonderful features of sevens for our folks out there who wonder what sevens are like. Fast thinkers. They oh, think fast. Racy, yeah. racy thoughts. But I think we want to be called to account too. Sure. Because it's boring to, you know, to sit in a class where you think you know the answers. And when somebody finally calls us on it and says, actually, you don't know that and you do have to come to class mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you something you don't know, I think we get, we could be the best student ever for a teacher because we're so passionate. Yes. Exactly. So at 20, you know, we've got this great composite picture of you at 20. So now you're older. Typically, you know, we we pass through experiences of suffering and counseling, you know. And so what we looked at in that florid moment at 20 when the lines were so clear what we were, you know, get a little fuzzy. And I'm wondering, could you, so now you're not 20, you're a seven now at a different point of life. How have you changed and what changed you? Like what, what's different for your sevenness now? I've definitely paid the price for some seven mistakes along the way. Uh, you can't get to this age without doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's pain that comes with that, right? And I went through my vocational discernment crisis and all of that. I'm guessing sevens do that. You know, I'm guessing that that happens to sevens, that it's hard to stay on one path. And for me, I think when I started writing books and speaking and yet I wanted to remain a pastor of a church that was always, to me, it was like my grounding, my, it really is like not just the God piece within me, but the church, I have a high ecclesiology, you know, it's life-saving to me. And I think that has to do with my sevenness. Mm. And so I didn't want to give that up, even though a lot of people in my position will just do the writing and speaking. And I think the seven in me didn't set enough limits and have a sane enough life. You know, I just got fried. Mm. I just got fried. And then I got to the point where I couldn't figure out what I was meant to do, what I missed, what I didn't miss. And to have sort of a year away to look at that was fascinating because what I found that I really missed was not what I expected. And it was that sense of grounding and preaching to the same people week after week. I miss that so profoundly. Mm. You know, it wasn't the same to me to go and speak to different groups. Even though I'm a seven, for my spiritual life, I don't particularly enjoy that. I want to be with the same community week after week. Well, and you so desperately need to be grounded in a place where you've already used your charm. So something else is required. Mm -hmm. Right, where nobody thinks you're special. I mean, that's Sometimes clergy would assume that like, oh, they'd say, oh, does your congregation appreciate the fact that you write books? I'm like, oh, why would they read them? They hear it all on Sunday. Like, you know, nobody thinks you're special as a pastor in a good way, you know? And so you've worked all night on a sermon and you're walking down the aisle and somebody grabs you and says, we're out of toilet paper in the men's room. Right. You know, and I realized that that's, that's great. Like, I love that about church. Mm. And I, I think, um... Sevens who are struggling with their desire for adventure, who don't know that they need to be grounded somewhere, continue to struggle until there's failure or until there's grounding that comes from outside of them. Mm -hmm. When I went through my, my rough year, you know, I became obsessed with the idea that I was meant to return to Thailand where I'd lived as a child. Now I'd lived in a lot of places, but I was obsessed with going to Thailand and this became this sort of almost unreasonable obsession to my friends who were like, look, you're unemployed. Like, why are you obsessed with Thailand? You know? And, um, 
And I end up going to Thailand, of course, as one does, mm-hmm. right? I got myself there and a friend offered me to stay in her house in this very remote beach that you were, had to take a boat to. And it was monsoon season. And I had all these adventures. And the first week was fantastic because my son went with me and, you know, I was feeling like everything was great and all my questions would get answered. And then he went home and I got this huge infection on my leg that was like turning purple. And I would call American Airlines and said, okay, I've made a mistake. Get me home immediately. You know, I'm not staying the next week. And I couldn't get home. Yeah. They, they literally couldn't get me home. And so here I was going to this clinic where with people who were taking pictures of my injury and Googling it, who didn't speak English, you know, and all of a sudden it's like the adventure has changed. Right. Yeah. And, but it was an amazing spiritual moment for me because I ended up being so glad I couldn't go home because the seven of me just wanted to fix it and leave. And instead I had to stay an extra week. Yeah. I had to make friends. I had to rely on people. Right. I had to let other people take care of me. I had to tell people my story and I had to spend time with myself and my pain, the physical pain of this strange illness, but also the spiritual pain that had taken me there. Right. And in the end, I think I really did have to go to Thailand right. to experience that pain. Um, as silly as it sounds. Yeah. Doesn't I, sound silly to me no. at all. No, mm. I think, you know, one of the things we say about threes on the Enneagram is that they have to have a big failure. They have to fail. And sevens have to have a pain yeah. that lasts for a time that they can't reframe. Lillian, you are just nailing so many features of sevens, and that's so helpful for, for our folks. And you were just talking about this, you know, I need to go to Thailand. I need to go to Thailand, you know. And, and you know, sometimes sevens get this stuff locked in their brains. And when they do, I mean, it's just like pointers. You know, they're like, they just like a... like a. They're going. They're going. And what happens is, in addition to reframing being a critical strategy for sevens, because they want to avoid pain, they want to turn that negative into a positive as fast as possible... Well, they don't even have to think about it. No, it's no, no. It's, yeah, it's just an instinctual bang, right? right? So the, 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 the other one, though, is rationalization is a major, major defense strategy for sevens. And so I can hear you almost rationalizing to all your friends, oh, this is why I got to go. I got to go. And, 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 and yeah. if, if they put that limitation on you, then they really get angry. Sevens can get real angry if, if they're rash and that rationalization goes up and up and up and... What's so interesting to me and so so great about what you're saying is I do know some sevens who have not who have managed to skirt pain in their life better than most people and that's really fun at 20 that person's really fun at a party you know at 20 but at 50 or 40 when you meet a seven who hasn't done some work you know I'm just telling you, it's sad because they're still Peter Pan. You know, it's they're, tragic. They're, it's I think tragic. it's more than sad. It's tragic. Yeah, they've never and grown think, up. And I think, as a pastor, you can't get away with skirting pain. Like you have to learn to to be to be respectful of other people's pain. Mm. And you know, it's. I remember my first pastoral counseling class in divinity school, and they were big into Carl Rogers, and mm-hmm. you were supposed to reflect back. You know, right. so if. If somebody said, um, you know, my marriage is in trouble and my my husband and I have been fighting about my brother who's in prison and I just feel so alone, you were trained that you were supposed to respond, it sounds like you feel alone, right? right? Yeah. And what I always wanted to respond is like, what? I didn't know you had a brother in prison. Yeah. yeah. You know, what yeah. did you do? 
Like, and they'd be like, well, I'm really here to talk about my marriage. You know, well, what happened in your marriage? You know, and we were taught to pull back from the plot that we were interested in mm -hmm. and to stay with the feelings. And that was hard, but I think that's also sort of a Christ-like discipline, you know, that, that Jesus, like when he heals people, he says, what do you want me to do? Yeah. He doesn't say, whoa, your brother's in prison. You know? Yeah. Suzanne will say that the reason Jesus says that is because there's no question in her mind that Jesus is a two. <laughs> <laughs> because I am, of course. Yes, but I don't want to leave this this time of talking about no limitations without talking about no expectations. Because sevens don't like expectations either. Mm. If they're predictable expectations, that's one thing. Like if they know they have to be someplace and they have to do something. But boy, when you expect a seven to do something that's outside the boundaries— then you've, yeah. that that means it's not happening. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what does that look like? Give me, I don't know what that means. You can't expect a seven to behave a certain way at a certain event because of the nature of the event or because of the people who are mm -hmm. going to be there. As soon as you put those kinds of expectations mm -hmm. on sevens, they they can't stay in the lines. If you hadn't drawn any lines, yeah. they probably would have done fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why I, when people told me I was a three, I had this visceral reaction yeah. against it because I thought I'm not a performer. Like right. I don't try to meet. If, once you tell me, yeah, you expect me to act a certain way, I'm probably going to deliberately or, but unconsciously act the opposite. And, and also I just have, I don't like that in other people. Like I hate the cheesy after dinner right. speaker who's got the canned jokes and the expected answer. Right. You know, I don't like the ways in which clergy will speak in this certain language. It's like kind of this phony baloney language or use, you know, I, I want that authenticity from other people. So hmm. I don't want to be reined in myself. So I, I, we don't like to tie people from a distance and, you know, it's almost like in, in the therapeutic world, you're never supposed to diagnose somebody unless they've been in your office before, you know, but <clears throat> there is a seven, I think a person who I think is a seven, but I'm, I say think is a seven and a healthy seven. And so I think this is a compliment. I mean, that's Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I think and, so too. And let me just tell you why you're reminding me of him. Uh, he did an interview. So, so for those of you who are wondering what a seven might be like, you know, think about Colbert for a minute. And if you're if you want to see why I think he's healthy, watch the interview with him and Joe Biden, where the two of them are talking about the pain of losing family members. And, you know, Colbert lost, what was it, his father and a couple of brothers? I can't remember, but it was, a, it was two or three members of his family. And then he ended up spending years taking care of his mom. Yeah. And the two of them together, and what you saw in him was this depth. So here's this seven- with and all this depth. Yes, and spiritual. And the reality is that for uh, threes and sevens mm -hmm. and eights, feelings of thinking, feeling, and doing, feelings are repressed. Mm. And whatever's repressed in you is when you bring it up, the purest yes. part of you. And, yes. and they're pure feelings. Well, so I, I love Stephen Colbert. And yeah, part of what I love about him is he can have you laughing your head off, but then he'll make some statement that's sort of the most beautiful elements of a well-formed, deep Catholic theology of service or, you know, something like that. And he just surprises you. I love that yeah. he surprises you. And yeah, I, I think that's, well, I'm flattered to be compared to him. Yeah, yeah because I he's great. He's brilliant. And his humor is so, is so multi-layered and smart. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing that I think we uh, 
could talk about for a couple of minutes. We don't have very long, but I think packaging is packaging is kind of new language for me in the mm. last six months. And I think there's an awful lot about that we have to learn about how to receive information from different numbers based on the packaging that they offer mm-hmm. us. And I think sevens um, have a way of bringing in tenderness in, in a way that you don't expect it. It, mm. it catches you off guard, mm-hmm. which in a time of so many words from so many people mm-hmm. feels so genuine and authentic. And I would... I would so much rather have an authentic, tender moment with somebody than that sappy, always sweet. You know, I don't trust that anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to trust it anymore. Mm -hmm. And often I think with a seven, the very tender moment might be followed by a sarcastic comment that from another person would seem totally inappropriate, but it fits because it's authentic and you know that person is is laughing either in sorrow or with you, you know? And for me, I think, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about since reading your book about the avoidance of pain. And I've often said that for me, writing is my form of prayer. Mm. It's my contemplative prayer because, but what I've often said is writing is also when I discover what I think about something, but maybe now I'm thinking it's what I discover, what I feel. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Because my writing will often have more tenderness in it because I've written, edited, processed. It's my prayer life, right? And I've yeah. gone over, and that's where I notice God and things. Like, I'm not having experience in the, in the middle of the day and going, oh, God's right here in the midst of this. It's five years later. I've written, edited, rewritten. And in that journey, I've discovered not only where God was, but maybe I am discovering my own heartbreak, yes. what I felt. Sure, sure. So, I did think of the seventh story when I was um, reading your book. I thought about uh, the way in which I think the phrase is used, you know, seven lands on their feet. And when I was a kid, my mother used to always say, Lillian is just like a little cat. Whichever way you throw her, she lands on her feet. Mm -hmm. And I think grown up seven, the person I am today, is critical of that. Mm. Like first, I'm a parent of own kids. So I think, why would you throw your children in the air like little cats to see if they land on their feet? You know, and, and also I'm a cat lover. So maybe this will sound corny, but when you throw a cat, it does land on its feet, but then it runs into an alleyway and hides and doesn't ever walk up to that person again. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a way in which people think that sevens or cats who land on their feet don't feel pain Mm -hmm. and they get angry at people that. Yeah. And it's almost like they want them to feel experience it. You know, they get envious or they want to pull down. Yeah. And I wondered what you thought of that theory. Well, I just think that pain is uh, an individual thing for sevens. So I think they feel pain and they manage their pain themselves. And they don't feel or think they have any need to share it with you. That's right. And I'm, I think other numbers overshare their pain. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a middle space there. Uh, for people to work from. But I do think that there's a danger in, you know, not showing people that you feel pain. Of course. That people then want you to feel pain. Like, okay, you don't feel pain. I'm going to make you feel. And and to the seven, or to me, it feels so unfair because I'm thinking, don't you know the pain I went through already? Yes. But then I realize they don't know. I think there's an awful lot of work to be done across all of our culture with grieving. 
And I think sevens have work to do in that mm-hmm. department, but it's not modeled for us, any of us, anywhere. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you uh, one more question. And uh, the question I want to ask is this. What do you wish that people knew about sevens? Maybe it's because I've just been thinking of the transfiguration scripture. And this really is how my mind works. Like, I do think about this stuff all the time. And so I'm thinking of the moment where Jesus appears in the sky, you know, and Moses and Elijah, and Peter says, I want to build a monument. I wish people understood about sevens, that we're the people who don't want to build the monument. Like Mm. the sevens were the disciples who were paying attention and just taking it in. And when God says, you know, shut up, Peter, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased, that there were probably two sevens standing there already, the other disciples, who were taking in the beauty and the awe of it. And I wish people understood that sevens are not surfacy or frothy, but mm-hmm. have this ability to appreciate and to be the mystics and the people who stop in the moment and take it in. And to stay in real time. Sevens are oriented to the future, but they have experiences in real time because they don't want to miss anything. Yeah. They don't want to miss it. And, they, and they're often the ones saying to the Peter, no, you can't build a monument to this. And that's a very unpopular position to take yes. in the world yeah. and even in the church, which wants to build monuments. So yes. I wish people sort of understood that the seven can often be the person having a very deep and powerful mm-hmm. mystical yes. experience. And that actually is a big feature of sevens. Did you know that? There's a particular variant of a seven. No, I didn't. Yes, that they are. And my son is very, my son can walk around ruins in England of old churches and stuff. And he's a seven and he becomes very quiet and reflective. And it's all very shimmery for him. And and I took him to a monastery. I took him to the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And we spent three days in silence. And he, if you can believe a seven, he loved being with the monks. I mean, he just he just thought it was the coolest thing ever, you know? Uh, Susan's jumping up and down here. I know she's got one more thing to say. She's got one more thing to say, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap up. But Susan, go ahead. Well, my one more thing I want to say is that I just know that I know that I know that sevens would rather have the experience than a recorded memory of the experience. Mm-hmm. And building a monument is a recorded memory of wow, the experience. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And in our current culture, with our obsession with social media, yeah. that's our version of building the monument, that it didn't happen if you don't record it or get it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I think the seven in the world are sort of resisting that. Like they're a point of resistance yeah. to what I think is sort of a death march and sort of the extinction of spontaneity and real-time experiences. You know, that is so funny because I got now I got to say something before yeah. we close. My son leaves his phone at home or it's always out of power and he never posts anything. I, I swear to gosh, he, like... Because he doesn't, he really does want to be there, and he's like, well, if I take a picture, I'm not here. It just doesn't even occur to him. Oh, I got to tell someone about this because it's I like, post. I post on social media because it's my job. Yes, you know, it's it's on my list, like the groceries. You know, like I have yeah. to pay my light bill. I I do it, and also because I care about the ideas, and I want the ideas to get out there. But I never have my phone on. It drives me crazy that people have phones that interrupt with real-time conversations. You know, yeah. I, I consider it this, this terrible intrusion. And That's... I don't understand why everybody else in the world doesn't object as well. Yeah, and you would think that sevens would be all over their phones and Instagram, you know, but, but actually yeah. they're not. No, no. They're, they're, they want the experience in real time. Well, I just think it's so good to have a self-aware seven 
and one that has had, you know, really, you know, it's in the quality, the tone of the voice that you've, you've, you've had some suffering and you've had some, you know, rough experiences. And when you meet a seven who's got depth, I'm just telling you, it, it's really, they're, they sparkle beautiful. I mean, they, I mean, I, that's been my, I mean, I would love to know Stephen Colbert. Yeah, you know, I because I just think he's the real deal. So to you, Lillian, and to all of our sevens, this, this is something that always kind of gets me. And I tell my son this all the time. The word enthusiastic in the original language is en theos, which means in God. I love that. Yeah. And so, so isn't that a great, uh, just a, this idea that I really do think the joy of God, like mm-hmm. you all rep- on the Enneagram, you represent the joy of God. And I think, you know, to be in God is different than with God or around God, you know, but I think of, of sevens. Or right, helping God. Or helping God. Or me so lamenting <laughs> God, you know, or having lots of, you know, Sartre-like questions about God. You all are just in it. You are just in it. Hey, listen, everybody, I want to remind you, we're talking with Lillian Daniel, and I want you to remember uh, her wonderful books, Tired of Apologizing for a Church I Don't Belong to. And of course, your, your second book, Spiritual But Not Religious, is not enough, Seeing God in Surprising Places, Even the Church. Your website is LillianDaniel.com, and your Twitter handle is at Lillian F. Daniel. But most importantly, come see me at my church in Dubuque, Iowa. Oh, yeah. First Congregational? Yeah, First Congregational in Dubuque, Iowa, right on the Mississippi. Mm. Oh, that sounds good. Maybe we should do an Enneagram workshop there. Yeah. And then, in which case, they would call Jim at Chafee Management, C-H-A-F-F-E-E Management. We're the giant building in downtown Nashville. Our road back to you website. website. Yep, yep. Oh, we should do that. We have three seminaries here and lots of colleges. Oh, I'm feeling it. All kinds of fascinating Catholic religious life because Mm. this is the archdiocese. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place. The Catholic Church really loves me. You know, I I have one of theirs. Oh, yeah. I guess we'll stop you, on that. Yeah, I Actually, think that's, yeah. Called po- that's called poaching. <laughs> Lillian, would you promise to come back on the show and, and be en theos with us for another hour? I would love to. It's been an honor. I've learned a ton. We have so enjoyed having you on our, our show today. Suze? Yeah. I hate to say goodbye to you, but goodbye. Goodbye. It was a good one. It was a good one. See you all later. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. Produced by Jim Chapey and engineered by Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Ian, we're about to do some events together. We are, and I am so jazzed because I love it when you and I get a chance to teach together. March 31st to April 1, Otter Creek Church, Nashville, Tennessee, with our friend Josh Graves. going to be great. And then we're going to your great state, the Lone Star State of Texas. Nothing like it. Austin, Texas. Love that town. That's on May 12 and 13 at Westover Church. And Suze, you're doing another event in Dallas. First Methodist Dallas downtown. We're doing a big Know Your Number event. Listen to me, y'all. If you haven't been to see Suze do a Know Your Number event, you're missing something that's like better than the Rolling Stones. You need to be there. And my guess is the Rolling Stones are going to be with you in New York. Mm. Most likely, April 21st and 22nd, same time, uh, at Trinity Grace Tribeca. That's right. I can't wait for that. I love Tribeca. 
I love Austin. And Ian, where can they find out all the details about where we're going to be? They can find them at our website, theroadbacktoyou.com. And be sure to join us next time. It's going to be a good one, so come on back. 